welcome back to Let's Chat Markets. We've got a really special guest today. If you're on Twitter whatsoever, I'm sure you're very familiar with him. Uh, we've got Dwayne Faber on with us today to talk about what's going on in the Pacific Northwest. Our listeners might not know this about Dwayne, but he actually dairies in two states, Oregon and Washington. I would love to kick this episode off just talking about some of the differences between dairying in two of those states um, that you've noticed over the past few years. And then, of course, for those of you that may not know you, just give us a little bit of background of how long dairying has been in your family. Yeah, you bet. So I grew up on a dairy farm close to the Canadian border in Washington state. And in 2009, I went out on my own, figured it's a good time to get started. There was a lot of blood on the streets and everything was a complete disaster. Uh, So I started renting a dairy further south in Skagit County. And we worked that dairy up to, yeah, about 900 cows and eventually bought my dad out and he helped, he still helps me out actually. And Tells me what I'm doing wrong and advises me and tells me, it lets me know when my, uh, when my marketing isn't going well, when he gets a, a letter, that's right. You get something in the mailbox saying, you know, you left a pickup truck, uh, over in Chicago, then it's, it's good for dads to point that out. So <laughs> yeah. no, so we, we had the one dairy, uh, here and built it up. And then in 2016, I rented another dairy up the road here in, in Skagit County still. And then kind of came to the realization that there's some certain, it, it's a tough area to dairy. We're at the end of the road for corn and soybeans. We've got some of the highest costs of shipping and basis to get it out here. And, and the co-op that we were dealing with, it had some struggles itself. And I figured, hey, rather than complain about it, it's time to look for something better and, and it didn't have to look too far, but just further south of us in Oregon, there's one of the better co-ops in, in the whole U.S. in Tillamook Creamery. And Tillamook does a great job of making a, a fantastic cheddar, and they market it all over the U.S., and they've developed quite a brand and a loyal following. And they've passed on those earnings to producers. And so producers in Tillamook County and uh, the county north of that, Clotsop County, were paid for paid well for the products that they brought to market, for the milk they brought to market. And it just looked like there was more of a future there, particularly here where we've got a lot of environmental challenges. We've got a lot of urban growth issues and uh, we don't, the dairy, dairy isn't looked kindly upon by a lot, of the, a lot of the people kind of encroaching on farmland. And yeah, it's tough to milk five, 6,000 cows. We don't have that desert climate to expand and grow. And I enjoyed the lifestyle of, of the smaller dairy and, and I felt like Tillamook paid farmers for that. And so with that in mind, in 2019, I shut one dairy down and bought a dairy down in, in Oregon there. And we started shipping milk down there. And so it's gone well. It certainly has logistical issues and challenges and dealing with employees. Um, but last year it kind of came to fruition and, and that dairy seemed to, that dairy made money and we had challenges up North here again. And so that story, that narrative kind of kind of bore out that that was the right move. We're in more of a class four market up here in Washington, which mm-hmm. ironically, now I'm glad we still have that dairy, right. uh, given the difference in four and three. So, but yeah, no, that's kind of kind of the story in the synopsis. Yeah, good point there. We've seen these uh, class four premiums over class three for the first time in about a decade. So um, yeah, good for you. Um, 
I have noticed that Washington milk production, it's been down for 21 consecutive months. Um, and over the last, you know, seven months or so, there's been an average loss of about 7% below prior year. What are some of those key factors contributing to those declines and, and why now after being a relatively stable milk shed for years? So a lot of the story starts with processing capacity. And so there are plans in Washington to increase the processing capacity. And yet some of the challenges we're dealing with, like everywhere, is just that the cost to build has exploded. And, and the budgets that we had put out just two years ago are being ripped up. And there's a lot of uncertainty with that. And there's a lot of fear going forward on starting big projects and building projects. And so the capacity has been an issue. We've had uh, quota systems in place out here and, and that's limited some of the growth. And we've also had people moving out of the area or uh, quota or base moving to Idaho. There's been a lot of milk that has left and moved to, to Idaho for, for several factors, uh, some of which just being profitability, access to cheaper feed, cheaper labor. Uh, we, re, we recently, uh, they were recently struck down the exemption for ag overtime. So now over here, we are paying overtime on ag labor, which has been a challenge. And, and then just certain environmental challenges, which make it different, more difficult in Washington here to, to do business. And so people have looked for opportunities in other states. And uh, unfortunately, it doesn't look like that will change until we have added capacity, as we're currently quite tapped out on that. Yeah, interesting. Thanks for that bit of information there. Um, I will say I, I put out a tweet before we got on here, and there's a lot of people asking if you milk your own cows. <laughs> I, you want to answer to them? For the most part, we've uh, we've got employees and management in place that, that take care of milking. Um, occasionally, I have to fill in the gaps, but for the most part, uh, I, I, I try and have people in place to, to get that done. So Wonderful. Um, and let's just everyone's talking about it everywhere you go. You hear people talking about it, anaerobic digesters. That's all I keep hearing about every time we start talking about farm conversions or uh, getting more money out of um, operations or on-farm investments. It's, it's anaerobic digesters. They're all their age. Uh, what's the latest in your part of the world on those? It, it certainly seems that there, there has to be a size and scale to, to make that worthwhile. Uh, there's been a, several here locally that have been smaller in size, and they typically make their margin on tipping fees, where, which essentially are uh, products that they can't throw away. So that'd be like uh, fish guts or anything nasty out of a slaughterhouse, um, cooking oil, and that basically gets added to the digester. And they get paid well for that, for disposing of that waste. Um, to make money on the top end, it seems like you have to be five to 6,000 cows in order to make that pencil where you can, it seems like the real opportunity is converting it to LNG and then making sure that you're by a pipeline where you can push gas into the system. And we're, we're still also on the front end of this carbon credit, right? We don't know exactly where it is. It's kind of the wild west currently. There's several ways of calculating carbon credits. And, and yet it looks like animal agriculture is going to have some great opportunities to, to be selling those carbon credits into the market. And, and there, the consensus is not to get into any long-term contracts on that because we still don't know exactly where those are going to fall. Um, I, I also am a little bit torn because if the dairy industry is completely altruistic about 
lowering our carbon footprint, we should be able to, we should keep that in-house rather than sell that out onto the open market. But yet there have been stories locally here in Washington of farmers selling their carbon credits to the Nestle's and BP's and, and essentially allowing them to go out and feel good about their pollution. And uh, the dairy industry has been able to sell some of those carbon credits off and provide another market for them. Wow, that's interesting. I'm sure everyone will appreciate your opinion on that. We actually have our conference coming up here in June, and we're going to have a uh, farmer roundtable discussing all of those opinions on um, and takes on the anaerobic digesters. And there seems to be a whole lot of opinions, and I really appreciate that input there. What are some of your thoughts? I know, you know, producers are, have been struggling with whether they should utilize DRP or hedge with their supplier. What are your thoughts on DRP for the rest of the year here? It's interesting. I, I love a lot of the work that Marin Bozovich has done. Bozik, yeah. Bo- Bozik, thank you. My apologies, <laughs> Marin. But he had done some great work on projections and then backtesting a lot of that data, right? And originally it looked like, you know, you always reach out four quarters in advance, five quarters in advance and just lock up everything, right? And some of these prices that we're seeing, I don't know if they've just gotten burned so much, but we're seeing over a dollar on the on the DRP front, and it's certainly getting pretty expensive. Um, I, I think there's opportunity in it. I've, I had payouts last year on my DRP, um, third, fourth quarter, we did well on them. And so it's a tool, it's a tool in the toolbox, like everything. And I, I like the ability to leave your upside open on, on milk rather than just going in locking in a fixed price, um, just going and leaving the upside open and kind of having a defined insurance premium, insurance cost. And, and I think it's a great tool that, that every farmer should be looking at and, and utilizing. Uh, some of these, some of the prices that we're seeing, I mean, 24 bucks is, is absolutely insane. Like who would have thought even four months ago that we, we would be seeing these types of numbers. And, and for me personally, I've got some feed locked in. And so I, I just started hitting the sell button on the class three. I think there's a little more downside risk on class three than there is in class four. And uh, so, yeah, I've taken small bites of the apple myself, just kind of easing into some sales, but I, I, I don't think we've ever had an opportunity with more tools in the, in the tool belt on the dairy side. We've got so many opportunities and even for smaller producers, right below 300 cows, the DMC last year, I think if you max that out, we, I mean, it was nearly a hundred thousand dollars in in payouts per farm, um, just wow. a fantastic tool for for smaller smaller guys too, smaller farmers, right? And there, the DMC is a no brainer. Like even in a year like this year, um, I think it would behoove everybody just to sign up for that. No matter, even if you know and think it's a loss, just getting into that habit because you have a year like last year where it's a massive payout and uh, really kind of came through and saved the day for a lot of smaller producers. Um, yeah, so really no, there's, there's some great tools out there, but awesome. Do you have any questions for me? <laughs> you bet. I, I know there's an Alyssa <laughs> crystal ball out there that, that yeah. knows where everything is going. And so I'm curious where, uh, where Alyssa's head's at. And I want her to make bold predictions oh. that I can, I can, I can gamble my life savings away with. Oh my God. Thank goodness. We have a disclaimer at the end of this episode. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I guess I'll start with what's bullish. We have a lot of supportive factors here to your point and maybe more so on the class four side, but we're dealing with global inflation. 
everyone's talking about it. It's in all the headlines. We've got food and protein shortages that we had even before this Eastern European crisis, and it's just gotten worse. Feed prices, diesel, fertilizer, labor costs, as you mentioned, um, they're kind of squeezing margins on farm. So we're limiting on-farm expansion opportunities in many parts of the U.S. And, and it's not just limited to the U.S., right? They're experiencing the same issues in Europe and in New Zealand. We've got shipping issues that are preventing a lot of product from leaving U.S. shores. It luckily, because we don't have massive stocks and it's not easy to lock in new affordable contracts either with these shipping companies. So a lot of things on the positive side of the market and I'm not finished. Um, we're on pace <laughs> for negative milk production report throughout spring flush here in the U.S., Obviously, Europe too. Uh, key countries there, Germany, France, UK, all continuing to see negative growth. Ireland may start to back off. Italy's milk production growth is backing off. We're just, you know, we continue to highlight the fact that milk solid expansion on a global level hasn't really been able to keep pace with what demand looks like from Asia domestically here in the U.S. It's just been a lot of bullish factors here. <clears throat> we also have the aforementioned Eastern European conflict. This global turmoil is going to promote people to start building inventories. That's going to be happening during a period of low availability as it is. So essentially, until milk returns to growth, maybe later this year um, into the end of Q3, Q4, pending obviously favorable weather and input costs, this sort of weaker output situation is just going to continue to underpin prices. Class four specifically, we continue to see regional disparities in milk production, right? But it's the West Coast, those class four milk producing regions that are continuing to run into issues with milk production, which is going to limit supplies there on, on non-fat dry milk, on butter. So yeah, you're right. That premium that class four has man maintained is expected to um, stay intact through the end of the year because of all those issues. So one of the questions I had is, where do you see the risk? That certainly seems like a lot of optimism and bullish chatter out there. And historically, that's when things are ready to tank and head back down the other way. What, what do you see as downside risk and, and where does this thing go? Or what, what, is, what would be something we can keep our eye on and looking for potential reversal? Oh, great question. I think, you know, on a more macro level, we do have higher gas prices. We've got higher costs. Even used cars are <laughs> at multi-year highs. Um, other consumer staples are, you know, ex exponentially higher than where they were just a couple of years ago. And that's going to really limit some discretionary spending in other areas. And that could be a warning sign for um, a possible recession. I know that's a scary word. Um, I think other protein segments such as beef and pork and eggs, they're rising much faster. Um, so perhaps dairy isn't the first thing to go for consumers, but that's certainly on the radar. Um, and then the other factor would be demand destruction um, on a global scale. We've seen for months now, a lot of people speculating whether China's actually experiencing this rampant increase in domestic consumption or all, or are they just stockpiling? Um, and, you know, if it's the latter, we're, we're certainly in for quite a strong sell-off. I'm of the opinion that their domestic demand consumption is pretty solid, um, but there's always that 
possibility with the lack of transparency that um, demands not as strong as we think it is. Is there, is there risk that China just comes to market and we get into some nasty elongated tr trade war again or not? And they come to market saying, hey, we're done with US dairy? I think what's interesting is New Zealand's been short on product for so much of the season. And so has Europe. So we've seen China come to the U.S. for ingredients that they typically wouldn't. I think something inhibiting our trade with China is their stricter um, label requirements that we're just not set up for. Um, there's some certain things like New Zealand's created so much of their manufacturing processes around Chinese um, spec requirements. So I don't expect us to gain incredibly massive market share the way that New Zealand has been able to or anything like that. But it is interesting that they continue to come to us when, when the market's short. So I think that that means so much of the world moving forward is going to be highly dependent on the U.S., not just China. I mean, eventually we're going to have quite a gap to fill on a global scale because, you know, peak cow in New Zealand, um, and it's been that way for a while now, and they are so limited by weather. And then Europe is running into a lot more um, issues and pressures from consumers to reduce herd sizes there. So the U.S. is going to be under a lot of pressure to fill that gap. And we just don't have it right now. Yeah, it certainly seems like there's a lot of bullish factors, too, right? I mean, we're looking at potential interest rates going up. You're looking at processor issues. You're looking at uh, farms that were stamping out dairies that are now scared to, to go and start a massive project. And, and uh, like you spoke to on the global scale, certainly no players coming to market with mass volume either. Right. And so there is a case for somewhat of a prolonged bull market, which sounds scary. And mm -hmm. we, especially being a dairy producer, it feels like we don't deserve any of it. So it's a little <laughs> scary to talk about, but uh, yeah, no, it certainly looks like it's lining up to, to be some, some pretty good margins for, for a little bit of time here. Yeah, I think you're right. And, you know, I can't speak to our specific forecast as that's for customers only, but we do see the market um, continuing to rise pretty much through summer as milk will start to tighten up again after that spring flush. All right. Well, that does it for today's bonus episode with Dwayne Faber. It's been such a pleasure having you on and chatting markets here. I hope we can do it again soon. I would love the opportunity, Alyssa. You are delightful. <laughs> right. Well, thank you to everyone for listening. And if you have interest in viewing our actual price forecasts on all CME products, just head to our website, request a free trial, and we'll send it over to you later today. Cheers. Be sure to subscribe so that you never miss an episode. And if you're interested in receiving more information, as well as our analysis, please visit highgrounddairy.com to request a free 30-day trial today. Futures and options trading involves substantial risk and is not suitable for all investors. Um, um.